Good morning, City Church. It's, hey, there you go. Uh, it's really, really good to be here this morning. Hey, um, I might be coughing up here today, so I just bear with me a little bit. Uh, by the way, just for some of you, I don't have COVID. I took a COVID test, so you can rest easy of that. Um, but if you'll just bear with me a little bit today as, as we walk through this text, we're going to be wrapping up our sermon series through the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at the final psalm, the ultimate psalm, the, the psalm that no matter if you are a Christ follower or not, according to the Bible, all of us will be singing one day. So if you have a Bible, open it up with me to the book of Revelation. Um, yeah, that's right, the final psalm in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. So if you're new to church, that's at the very back of your Bible. We'll just go to the back, flip back a few pages, and you'll get there. In 1857, a young man named Thomas Johnson was about to get a glimpse of the brokenness of this world. Thomas, Thomas was born a slave, and he experienced firsthand the horrors of slavery and racism. He watched his family members be beaten and treated as subhuman, and one day in 1857, his master forced him to take him to a book burning by a, a man, a white man that they had talked about, a man named Charles Spurgeon, who had the audacity, this, this British man had the audacity to write about why slavery was wrong. As his masters were sitting there talking about this man named Charles Spurgeon, they wanted to burn every piece of literature they could find, and Thomas was the guy who was um, tasked with bringing them there to this book burning. Now Thomas, in the middle of this, he had never heard of a white man <clears throat> showing value and dignity to black people. In the middle of evil, Thomas got a glimpse of heaven. He got a glimpse of the, how things were supposed to be in a world that was colorful. He got a glimpse of what God wanted it to be. God, you see, is not colorblind. God is colorful. I, I think oftentimes we miss that because we, we try to be politically correct, so we say things like, I don't see color. Well, that's not how God sees it. God created different races, and they're a beautiful reflection of his glory. So Thomas, Thomas went into a world that did not show dignity or humanity to people like him, and yet for the very first time, Thomas got a glimpse of what it's supposed to be like, heaven breaking into earth. Thomas couldn't get this vision out of his head, and he was determined that one day, one day he would get his freedom, he would travel to the United Kingdom, and he would meet this man named Charles Spurgeon. Well, that day did come, and one of the most beautiful stories, and it is a true story ever told, Thomas got his freedom, he wrote Charles Spurgeon, found his way to the UK, studied theology under Charles Spurgeon, and not only did he study under him, they became best of friends. They learned from each other, they worshipped together. They painted a picture for the world that didn't seem possible, where people from, from different languages and backgrounds and races were able to gather together and have a commonality in which they, <coughs> they were co-equals together. Sometimes, sometimes we live in the most unexpected space, don't we? Sometimes the most unexpected things happen. We're a time where things just seem impossible. Like in the, <coughs> in the 1850s, it seemed impossible for something like this to happen. Sometimes we live in a place where progress seems like we're moving in the wrong direction. Y'all, sometimes if you were to sit up here and try to convince me of something, you could convince me of devolution way quicker than evolution. You could sit down and talk to me and convince me that we were human beings and we're constantly progressing towards becoming animals. And yet, and yet, whenever you look at this, the hope of that, the progress, the vision of the future that seems so bleak, 
oftentimes have these little moments where heaven breaks through. And God gives us a glimpse of what it's supposed to be. Every now and then, every now and then, in the middle of chaos, God shows you a glimpse of the future. God sometimes pulls back the curtain so that you can see the vision. What I want to do today is I want to take a few moments in the final psalm, if you will, and peel back the curtains a little bit for you. I want to show you a vision for how it's supposed to be, how it's going to be, how sometimes God wants to break that into our reality now. I want to show you what it's actually going to be like one day, and I want to remind you of that truth because oftentimes, <coughs> in the middle of the chaos, it's really hard to see. So again, grab your Bible and meet me in the most confusing book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. All right, we're going to be in chapter 5. Here's what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. All right, really quickly, let's do a little bit of Bible study here so you can get what's going on. By the way, if you get what I'm about to tell you, it will make reading the book of Revelation actually quite easy because it's not that confusing of a book. Here it is. The book of Revelation is essentially written in two genres. Okay, you have the first three chapters that are written in this genre called an epistle. That's just a big fancy word called a letter. Think about like the letter of Colossians or the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote. They're just letters written in a literary style for you to understand. So the first three chapters tell you who the book of Revelation was written to. Let me, let me give you, <coughs> save you a little bit of time and tell you the answer to that. It's written to the church. Okay, the book of Revelation is primarily written to believers in order to give them confidence in the future. How do I know that? The very first verse in the book of Revelation tells you. Here's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must take place, must soon take place. So the book of Revelation is there to show you what's going to happen. So the first three chapters are one genre. The rest of the book of Revelation is another genre that we call, big fancy word, a progressive recapitulation. Break that word down. Recapitulation means it tells the same story over and over and over again, but it does it with progress, meaning it's adding detail as it goes. So it's just a big fancy way of telling you the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to chapter 22 is going to tell the same story over and over again seven times. And seven is a massively important word because it's just completion. Think about creation. God created the world in seven days, meaning it's complete. He rested there. Okay, that word over and over and over again in the Bible is just showing you completion. So if you want to cheat on the test, here's all you need to do. Read the first three chapters and the last four chapters of the book of Revelation. You get the whole thing. The in-between is important, but it's just details. <clears throat> Back to verse 1. Okay, then I, I being John, the one who wrote the book of Revelation, saw. Now that's important. Y'all, God was giving John a glimpse into the future. He literally got to see the future. He was opening his eyes and showing him a vision for the way that things are supposed to be. And the best part about that is he wrote it down so that you and I can know and have confidence in the way that things are supposed to be. So he saw <coughs> in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed seven times. Again, seven complete. You're going to see that. Let's do a bit more work here. Who is seated on the throne? God the Father. So God is seated on the throne. By the way, take note of this. In ancient times, 
kings only sat when there was peace. That's a really important detail. In your future, it's not chaos. See, one of the things you need to know about God is in the future, he's not at war. Your future is peace. Part of the vision that God wants you to see is that the war is over. The battles that you face every day in this life are not the battles of your future. Some of you need to sit in that and rest in that just for a second. Right now, you might be in a battle, but your king is not pacing around the throne frantically wondering what to do. Your king is seated because it is complete, it is done, and he is in complete control of the things that you have absolutely no control over. Earlier this year, I, I read a book called 4,000 Weeks, and 4,000 weeks are the average lifespan of a human life, and it's a, it's a time management book for those of you that, uh, like me, don't really understand time management all that much, and here was the point of the book. Time, he says, is a commodity that you don't have any control over. So most of us spend our entire lives trying to control something that's not guaranteed to us. And basically what he says is, stop worried about the future, stop worrying about trying to leverage your life for things to come, and worry about your life now. Now that's really good advice if you're not a Christ follower. Because if you're not a Christ follower, let me just tell you, the future really doesn't exist. If you're not a Christ follower, if, if you don't believe in any of this stuff, well then the reality is, the reality is you better live your best life now, YOLO. And for you guys over the age of 50, that means you only live once. You only live once, all right? Because he lives, you live for eternity. And because he lives for eternity, and he's at peace, your future is worth living now, understanding that you can leverage for something to come. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, worthy or who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Y'all, here's the question. Who can open this thing, this scroll the, that, that, that is there? Okay, I need to do a little work here for you. Again, we're going somewhere, but step with me. This scroll, let me tell you a little bit about scrolls. Today, we, we write in these things called books. They're actually called codecs, but before books existed, they would write on a scroll. Basically, what they would do is they would take a scroll from both ends, and then they would write a little piece of information, and then they would seal it with wax so that nobody can open it, and then they'd write more, and they would seal it, and then you would get one copy, and then there would be a sealed copy to show you that you couldn't change that, okay? So this scroll, most of the time in the Old Testament, was a representation of something that was purchased. And, and the thing that you purchase, you would take the deed to that thing, and you would hold on to it in such a way that nobody could open it. There's really two great examples of this in the Old Testament. The first, the first is in the book of Ruth, <coughs> when Boaz <coughs> becomes Ruth's kinsman redeemer, or he, he purchases their family lineage, and by doing that, he now has the rights to redeem their family. Okay? The other one comes in Jeremiah chapter 32, when Jeremiah purchases the title deed to a land that is about to be conquered by another kingdom, which, if you think on the surface, doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's about to go into exile into Babylon and he's purchasing a title deed to this land that he won't own. And yet God tells him to do it because one day his future relatives will. So what you see here is you see this idea of redemption and purchase. And that's what happens most of the time. Here's what you need to know. Nothing in the Bible is on accident because God is trying to tell you a story. The scroll that is God is holding in his right hand is the title deed to a place, the kingdom of God. 
and it's a purchase of redemption for his people. The entire Old Testament is setting the scene for what's about to happen in heaven. To say it another way, it's the deed to earth and the purchase of you by his blood. How do I know that? Well, because, like you're about to see, Jesus is the only one who is able to open this scroll, and all of heaven and earth is about to worship him. Like, do you see the significance of what's about to play out here? Your hope is that there is someone and on heaven and on earth that can open this scroll to purchase this kingdom that's been broken. Y'all, there is, there is one that's coming, and he is coming to buy back the world that has been broken. Jesus is going to fix this broken world. That's the vision. That's where you're headed. That's your future. But before, but before the redemption, one of the things you see in this passage is tears. You see weeping. Keep reading with me. And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John is crushed. He's crushed. When you read the Greek here, he's not just crying. He's absolutely crushed because what he sees is a vision for completeness or wholeness or fixing the broken world. And yet he sees that there's a longing for that redemption to fix it and nobody can do it. John's tears, John's tears are a representation of all of our tears, aren't they? In that moment of brokenness or disappointment that we all face, the tears that Thomas felt as he walked through a broken life, that's what John is representing for all of us is this very moment when we realize that there's a world that's broken and nobody can fix it. The other day, <coughs> I was watching a documentary on ESPN about a guy named Dickie V., uh, one of the greatest commentators of all time, and he's telling this story about when he was four years old, he, he lost his eye, and, and he grew up with one eye, and this, this fake eye was a, a droopy, lazy eye, and, and he's weeping in this, and he talks about how he was playing baseball one day, and he's on the pitcher's mound, and he hears the parents in the stands making fun of him. Hears them talking about how, how could anybody pitch with one eye? Like, look at that kid up there. And they're, they're, they're just making fun of him, so he pitches harder and harder and harder. And he grits at it, and he talks about that's how he succeeded in life. But then he also said he went home, and he just cried uncontrollably. And you see this, see this 80-something-year-old man on the screen just wiping tears away from his eyes, and he says, it hurt so badly. And he's like, I just talked to my parents. Like, I don't know what to do. It hurts so badly. We all have tears. All of us have our thing, whatever that thing is. And some of us do a better job of hiding it than others, but we all have them. Let me just ask you, what are your tears? What is that thing that when people say it, deep down in your soul, it hurts? See, John's tears in heaven represent all the tears of all of humanity. <clears throat> that he cried because he needed God to fix this world. And I'm just telling you, if you're honest, there's a brokenness that all of us feel in our identity that, that we long for God to fix. Like Tolkien said, one day God is going to make all the sad things become untrue. One day he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. But until then, you have to be honest with yourself that there are tears because sometimes it just seems hopeless. It seems like there's no one on heaven or earth or under the earth that's able to do it, to fix it. And yet, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. What a good word. One day, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Did you notice the tense in some of this is past tense? He has conquered. He can open. Here's the picture. This is the hope 
that you are going to need to get if you are going to get what your future will behold. There is going to become a time when there will be no more weeping because the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. Now you need to understand who this lion of the tribe of Judah is because way back, way back in the book of Genesis, when you open up the very first pages of scripture, a war begins. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 after sin <coughs> enters the world. There's a war between good and evil, between heaven and hell. There is, there's something that's happening there. And, and the question is, is who's going to win? But even in the midst of this battle, in the very first pages of Scripture, God gives you a glimpse of the reality that he is going to fix the mess of this world. Martin Luther, the famous theologian, called this the proto euangelion which simply proto means first. Euangelion is the word for gospel. It's the very first gospel. It's the very first glimpse in the entire Bible that God will clothe you and he will fix you and he is going to fix the brokenness of this world. Fast forward a little bit. There's a man named Abraham that comes along and God makes a promise to Abraham that he would have a son and that son would be the promised one. He would be the one from the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. If you actually backtrack one chapter in the book of Revelation, you see that those 12 tribes of Israel represent all of God's people for all time. Okay, out of that 12 tribes of Israel is going to come a descendant who is able to open up the scroll. Now, if, you, if you're a Bible student, you would recognize that at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph, who's one of those tribes, he blesses the other 11, and one of those blessings comes to the tribe of Judah. What does he say? Out of the tribe of Judah will come a lion. Thousands of years before the book of Revelation is ever written, God is showing you that none of this is a surprise, and he knows exactly what he's doing. This book isn't accidental. These 66 books written by 40 different authors are one story that God has been writing for all of eternity. Now keep tracking with me. Eventually, Israel is going to have a king, and that king is going to come from the most unexpected line. He's going to be the youngest and the weakest brother, but he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. Guess what his name is? His name is David, and David is told that he's going to have a son, and that son is going to build him a house. Now, David thought that that son's name was Solomon, and that house was going to be a temple, and yet God has a vision way bigger than that. Y'all, sometimes our vision for God is just too small. Sometimes we can't see that in the middle of our valleys, maybe God is writing a story that's so much bigger than what we can see on the surface. See, when bad things happen, we're quick to blame God, and God's like, don't you realize that I am unfolding a story, and I'm unfolding a story that you are a part of, and it will make sense one day. Keep fast-forwarding the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11 says this. Look at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now, who is Jesse? Jesse is David's dad from the tribe of Judah. Here it is. The one who can open the scroll is the one that God had promised from the very beginning. Listen to me. God knows exactly what he's doing. The person in Genesis 3 who is fighting evil is Jesus himself that you are seeing in Revelation chapter 5 in the entire Old Testament tells you that he is coming and he will fix this world. Verse 6, in between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though I, it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes and with seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. Now really quickly, when John looks up to look at this lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb. 
This is super important here because Jesus won the battle for all of eternity not by becoming this strong, mighty warrior, but by becoming a humble servant who would lay down his life. Y'all, we have to get this. The way that God is able to conquer is by becoming a man who suffers in our place. Are you piecing it together? The, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, was Jesus himself. From the very beginning, God's plan was that he would put on flesh, he would fight our war for us. See, the promised one, the promised one from the tribe of Judah is God himself fighting your battle for you. The thing that makes Jesus different from any other king in all of human history is that he won by humility and not by power. That's what the book of Philippians says about Jesus. Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So God highly exalted him, and at the name of Jesus, every knee on heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow before him. Now the lamb, the lamb that conquered, through his humility, has something super awesome about him, something that nobody else has. Let me point it out to you. He has seven horns. Really quickly, horns just represent power. Meaning this, if, if seven is completion, Jesus is the all-powerful one. He has seven eyes, which means that he can see the world with a perfect sight. He sees the world more clearly than you and I. He has a perfect lens to interpret what's going on in the world. And he has seven spirits. Now, seven being complete, meaning the perfect spirit, he is the Holy Spirit of God, which means he has perfect presence. You see, you see these completion over and over. Let, let me just break it down. Jesus is the all-powerful one who knows perfectly he has perfect knowledge, and he's ever-present. Y'all, here's the point. Jesus is the perfect conquering king because he is also the suffering servant, and that makes him worthy of our praise. Verse 7, and he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. <clears throat> and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You get the picture? At first, there's weeping. Nobody can do it. Now there's worship. See the trajectory of our life? Weeping will be turned to worship when we see that Jesus is the one. And then they sing the final psalm, the song that you and I will sing for all of eternity. Listen to what it says in verse 9. And they sing a new song, saying, Worthy, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood ransomed. By the way, that word ransom, in Greek, it is the simplest way of saying you bought. See, that's the title deed. By your blood, you bought people for God <coughs> from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So with that in mind, that explanation in mind, let me give you five glimpses of your future. You ready? Write them down. Number one, your future is real. Y'all, you need to just hear me say that as plain and simple as I can. Your future is real. This isn't a fairy tale about an empty promise to come. What you're going to see is that you can bank on your future because God has already proven his faithfulness in the past. Because the resurrection is true, you know that God can do anything and what he says that he saw is real. The thing that Revelation tells you, the thing that John saw is real. You can write it down, take it to the bank, you have a future that is secure. Did you know that heaven is talked about more than 500 times in the Bible and every single time it's talked about as a real place? Jesus, when he talks about heaven, he says this, my in my father's house there are many mansions. If I would not have if this were not true, I would not have told you so. He's basically saying, this is real. 
Paul, he's so confident in heaven that he says that all believers have a citizenship in heaven. The entire book of Revelation is there to give you confidence about where you're going so that you would live differently now. If you know with all of your heart, soul, and mind that your future is secure, that should change how you live now. And again, God's future promises are always guaranteed because he has delivered on every single thing he has ever said he would do. Go back and trace all the prophecies about Jesus. Go back and trace all the things in the, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, that God has fulfilled. That's why I trace the storyline for you. From Genesis to Revelation, God is painting a picture because he wants you to see that the arc of history is God writing your future from beginning to end. You need to know, <coughs> God did not make a mistake. He didn't mess up, and he's not reacting. The plan has always been God. And the plan has always been that Jesus would be the suffering servant that would become the Lamb of God who would be slain so that he could be the Lion of Judah, that he would redeem creation. You need to know that your future is secure, and I love the way that John said it, or Jesus said it in John chapter 6. Listen to what Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, that's you, shall not hunger. And he's not talking about physical hunger, he's talking about a hunger for your soul, if you will come to him, you will not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Your future is real. Number two, your future is secure. Your future is secure. Did you notice in verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals? For you were slain, and by your blood you have bought people, you have ransomed people for God. <clears throat> from every tribe and language and people and nation. Y'all, I noticed something for the very first time this week as I studied this text. Notice this. In Jesus' resurrected body, you still see his scars. You still see his wounds. See, we're all going to have a resurrected body one day, and we're all going to stand perfected. And I think the vision that I have is when I stand before the throne, I'm going to look a little bit like Thor, No, but for real though, <laughs> for real. But Jesus didn't. I know like, you know, white Jesus that hangs in a lot of churches that looks like Thor with those flowing locks. That's not what he looked like. He had scars and wounds. You know why I think those scars and wounds are there? I think they're there for all of eternity to remind you the joy, the honor that Jesus had to shed his blood on your behalf. I think they're there to remind you that the security of your ransom, the purchase price of your redemption was the blood of Jesus, and don't you ever forget that it's by grace that you have been saved, and it was his honor to do so. Write this down. The security of your future lies in the scars of Jesus' body. Sit with that for just a second. Do you know why Jesus could unroll the scroll of eternity? Because he bought you at a price. The, redemption, the redemptive purchase of the cosmos is the blood of Jesus, and he delighted in you enough to do it. I, I, sometimes I just don't think that we sit in that enough. Did you notice what they all did whenever they sat there and they realized this? They worshiped. They sang a song. They, they couldn't help but burst out in song. You see, your, your future is secure and that should lead you to worship every day in the present reality that you have. The only response to this good news that Jesus is able to 
fix this world and that he did it by shedding his own blood is worship. That the entire plan of redemption was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Do you know what worship is? It's not singing some songs, although that's part of it. It's literally ascribing worth-ship to the one who deserves it. It's literally you and I giving back or, or walking up to our Savior and falling at his, uh, falling at, at his knees and worshiping him. Y'all, I, I, I don't understand. I really have a hard time understanding how people can come to church that understand who Jesus is and not engage in worship. Listen, the, the, we have an amazing worship team, but the skill of our worship team does not create the authenticity, authenticity of our worship. I mean, our worship is a reflection of the gratefulness of our own heart. So you should have freedom. If you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you want to engage, engage, because what you're doing when you worship is you are ascribing worth-ship to our king. You're not just singing for one another to hear. See, you, when you get to heaven, you are going to come face-to-face -face with your Redeemer. Like Thomas in that moment when, he, when he's doubting Jesus and Jesus says, hey, why don't you put your fingers into my blood-bought hands if you don't believe me? And that Savior is going to wrap those blood-bought hands around you and embrace you and he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes and he's going to tell you, listen, it all had a plan. And I know you can't see it in this moment, but what I need you to do is I need you to worship through this moment because one day, one day I'm going to fix it all. And until that day, you need to understand that your only response is trust and worship to the gospel. Number three, your future is multicultural. Now, can I just say this really quickly? If you have a problem with other races, you are going to be very disappointed when you get to heaven, if you get there. You know why? God's kingdom is a multi multicultural expression of worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we are going to sing this beautiful song together, people from all over this world. Like, I, if you, can you just sit there for a second and see it? God, again, God has created this beauty multiplicity so that all of us could engage in worship together. I'm going to get here in just a second. But listen, you write this down. Church is meant, church is practicing heaven. Church is practicing heaven now. That, that's the whole point. We're supposed to create this picture for the world to see what's to come. Heaven is supposed to break through in what we're doing in this multicultural expression right now. That's why I love the fact that sitting in this room right now, there are people from India, South Africa, South Asia. There are people from Singapore and Bolivia and Australia. And, and I'm, I'm looking at Scotland and Germany and the U.S. and I think Nigeria. It's this beautiful expression, but here's my warning for you. We need to be for multicultural church, not monocultural church and multicolored. You hear what the difference is? God's vision isn't a bunch of people from different cultures coming to white church. God's vision is that we would all come together bringing this beautiful expression of Jesus and how we've seen him in our own cultures and we'd be able to bend just a little bit so that we can create a picture of what God's church is going to be and the expression of it. Listen, we need to hold tightly tightly to good theology of what makes a church a church and be able to be loose on everything else. Y'all, worship is for all people, not just a select few that fit into our box. 
By the way, did you know that Christianity is spreading faster in the Latin and African and Asian worlds than it is right here in the U.S.? And, and we worship a Middle Eastern Jew, which means that you might be in the majority culture here, and yet when you get to heaven, you will be a minority. So you need to get used to the fact that God's vision for his church is multinational, not just here. So we have to be able to make room and create space for a multicultural expression and vision for the church to reflect to the world what heaven is supposed to look like. And man, dare I say that it might be one of the most important things we do right now. As our culture is divided and racial tension is getting worse and we have wars in other countries and we're segregating other people groups, the church needs to be the place that says, you can't figure it out, but we can if you want to see what it looks like to love and accept one another from all different places around the world, and if you want to see what it looks like to serve one another and to put aside these, these fake um, hierarchies that we've created and we love each other and we worship the Jesus and we put aside our differences because we have something bigger than our differences, come here. And I'll show you what you're looking for and what you're missing because it's not about us, it's about him and he created all of us. Y'all, number four, your future is on earth. Your future is on earth. Notice verse 10. <clears throat> and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Where will we reign? Come on, say it together. Where will we reign? On earth. On earth. The book of Revelation is a picture of your future in heaven, and yet heaven, heaven is on earth. By the way, Revelation chapter 21 gives you the same exact vision. It says heaven is going to come down from God, from heaven to us. Here's the picture and here's the point. Earth isn't a place that is just going to be disregarded one day because it's all going to burn up in the end. I hear this all the time. That's not God's picture for heaven. It means that the earth matters. The world matters. How we live here matters. How we treat it and how we love one another matters. What we show dignity to matters. God has called us to be good stewards of this place and to begin shaping a picture to care for and to cultivate it. That was the very, very beginning of the Bible as God's command was to cultivate the earth, to build this thing, to architect this thing. As Christ followers, we should care more about the place that God has put us than anyone else. We shouldn't just wait to leave it. One day, heaven and earth are going to collide again. They are going to meet again, like it was before sin entered the world. I don't know if you realize this, but Genesis 1 and 2 is a picture of what heaven is going to look like. God on earth with his people forever with no sin. And until that day, watch this, God's vision is, this is a key word, for you to usher in his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's what I want you to see. Jesus has already purchased the title deed to this place, and he's given it to you. And he said, now start building it. City Church, start building this place. Your future reality is now, which leads to number five. Your future begins now. Did you notice that most of the language is, again, past tense? Jesus has already purchased your redemption. Here's the amazing part. God's design is that his kingdom would begin to break through on the earth as it is in heaven now. Do you remember Jesus' Lord prayer? Do you remember what he said? God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven now. By the way, the shirts we're going to give everybody next week, that's what it says, in Alpharetta as in heaven, City Church. We want to build God's kingdom in Alpharetta where he has put us as in heaven now. I don't know about you, but, but this, this place 
that God is allowing us to design this, this counterculture to usher in his kingdom gives me such amazing purpose. Listen, God's not waiting for you to die to go to heaven. He's equipped you, he's called you, and he said, start building this thing now. See, that's what City Church is. That's why we moved here to be a part of planting this church. We believe that the church should be a hub for the gospel in this city now. And the greatest life change that you will ever experience will happen in the church. What if that was our mindset? What if that was our mindset? Listen, I know that the church is messy. I know that. The church is messy because I'm in it. Right? If you don't want a messy church, don't have people. Like, I get all that. But I think our vision is far too small for what God wants to do. God takes broken things, beautiful broken things, and paints this tapestry together. That shows the world that he's got a bigger vision for anything you could ever imagine. What if we decided that Revelation 5 doesn't have to be a future vision, but Revelation 5 can start now because the blood-bought purchase of his kingdom has already taken place? What if this became a place where polarization and homogeneity weren't the norm, but we had a commonality, watch this, around a savior that died? Here's what I'm saying. We don't want to go after uniformity here. Uniformity is we're all the same. We want to go after unity. Unity is, is we have a commonality. We center our lives around a vision that's bigger than us. We all are centered around this idea that we all believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and yet because he is, we are willing to put aside our differences. We are willing to put aside our differences to create something bigger than ourselves. Do you want to know why all this matters so much? Because there's a world that's hurting, and they don't know where to turn. They're redefining definitions that we've never done. They don't, they don't know what identity is. They don't know what sexuality is. They don't know where joy is or happiness is. Y'all, we should be a big old signpost that says, it's in here at the throne room of Jesus. And I can promise you that we have a lot of mess, and yet we have something that's worthy. We have a king. He is worthy of our praise. See, I want to be a place. I want to be a place this year that worships passionately like they did in Revelation chapter 5, like we will do because we're so convinced that Jesus is worthy, that he is the one that paid it all. He paid our price of redemption and he's worthy of our worship. Listen, God's kingdom breaks through both individually and corporately. Individually, I want you to know that it was the joy of Jesus to die for you. Now, you you need to slow down for a second because oftentimes when I say you, you don't think I'm talking to you. And I, I'm talking to you. When Jesus unrolled that scroll, your name can be in it. And there's a joy in heaven and on earth rejoicing over you if you will receive it. It's not bought because you did anything good or bad. It's bought because the blood of Jesus purchased you at a price. And sometimes I just think that you need to realize that. You need to receive that individually. And yet corporately, there's some things that I want us to get after this year. There are really three things that we're going to prioritize around here and we're going to go all in on. They should not surprise you. Number one is we got to go all in on the gospel. We have to prioritize the gospel above everything. When I look at this text... It's all about worship, all about worship. 
all of heaven and earth and under the earth are going to worship the one who was slain. What people need more than anything is the truth of the gospel. They need to know that we are a people that is known by Jesus, that loves Jesus, and that's cultivating a relationship with Jesus. That's why we will always prioritize teaching the unchanging truths of the gospel even when they're not popular. You hear what I'm saying? Like we will teach the authority of God's word without apology because we just believe that God's word changes lives. Listen, the church, the church is the way that God decided to grow his kingdom by putting little churches, little hubs of the gospel, little local assemblies like ours all over this world that point to the truth by teaching the word of God, by loving our community, by serving one another. All three of those things are countercultural. All three of them. One to say that there's authority outside of ourselves that we're going to submit to. One that says we're going to love one another even whenever we have differences. And one that says we are going to humble ourselves by serving. We want that to be City Church. Next, we want to be a place where you belong. See, community is everything because real community fulfills our deepest desires. We're built for it. We need it. There are so many one another's in scriptures. We all want to be known and accepted. Because listen, to be known without being accepted is simply to be rejected. And to be accepted without being known is just sentimentality. We need both. We need City Church to be a place that you don't have to fake it until you make it. You can come in here with all your mess and all your vulnerability and simply belong. Because I believe that life change happens when we're willing to do that. When we take off our mask and we enter into the front door and we don't feel judgment. By the way, let me just say this really quickly. There's a big difference between love and judgment. Let Let me tell you what it is. It's not accepting everything that everybody says. That's what culture says. If you don't accept what I say, you judge me. That's not true. Jesus told people they were wrong all the time. The difference is, is what do you do after? If I look at you and I say, hey, what you're walking through right now, that's actually wrong and it's going to hurt you, but come here, we'll walk through it together. That's love. If I say what you're going through right now is wrong and it's going to hurt you, and I say, now go, that's judgment. We need to be a place that has such conviction and love that we bring people in and we're not afraid to walk through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life together. We're patient with one another as we walk this journey with Jesus. Lastly, lastly, and I'll go quick, we need to be a place marked by worship. We need to be a place marked by worship. I just don't know how you can come face to face with the gospel and not be changed by it. I don't know how you can look at Revelation chapter 5, understand that the impossibility of me and you fixing ourselves and not be changed by it. Look at it again. Worthy are you to take the scroll? Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people. Among those people are me, for God. You ransomed me for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to God, and they shall reign on the earth. I really want you to sit for a second. Why is Jesus worthy? He's worthy because he was slain, and by his blood he bought you. See, here's what you have to get. According to the Bible, that word slave, doulos, means that you and I are either a slave to the world or we're a slave to Jesus. There is no other option. You can either pay your own price, your own blood for your own redemption, which you're not going to be redeemed because you deserve the penalty, or you can lean onto Jesus who paid it all for you. That is your only option. Do you not see how that should lead to worship? Like imagine today if you had a death penalty. 
and you walked into the courtroom and you're about to be sentenced and the judge looks at you and he says, you are guilty and you are sentenced to death. And then he steps off of the throne. He walks down to you, takes off his, he takes off his robe and he says, now punish me instead of him. I will take his punishment. What would that do to you? What would that do to you? Now imagine a guiltless, an extremely, perfectly guiltless one doing that in your place, the God of heaven doing it. See, that's what Jesus did. He paid it all. Again, and by your blood, you ran some people. By your blood, you ran some people. There are two reasons. Two reasons. So that you could belong to God forever. And not just like belong like he owns you, but like he treasures you. That's the language. Like, I belong to my wife, not because I own her. I belong to her because I treasure her. I'm fully committed to her. She is my everything. And I would do anything for her. And you will be a co-ruler and reign with God on earth. That's incredible, y'all. That's your destiny. Your destiny is that you will reign in this kingdom as a priest who worships and a ruler who rules. We need to be a people marked by worship. It needs to be a part and define everything that we do. So let me just bring it full circle. Church, when we are defined by worship and conviction, like Charles Spurgeon was, we give people a glimpse of heaven breaking through. A glimpse that changed Thomas's life. A glimpse that will change your neighbor's life. When you live out this reality, that's what you do. You have the greatest opportunity to peel back the curtains for the world around you and show them what the future will look like. A more beautiful um, kingdom than the one that we live in now. Here's how I want to end. I want to boldly ask you to commit to this year as we kick off this year next week to this vision. To go all in with building God's kingdom at City Church. To be a people who worships Jesus and prioritizes doing it together. That means being in the room together, who sacrificially gives to advance the gospel. That means generosity. And to serve faithfully at City Church and in our community to embody this thing called the church everywhere that we go. I know that's a big ask, but is there not a vision more worthy than this? That you get to be a part of changing eternity for people by bringing it down now on earth as it is in heaven. See, church, that's where we're going. That's the vision. That's the last psalm. And we get to do it now. So I want to invite you to do it with me. Let me pray for you. (coughs) Jesus, the only way that's possible is if you empower us by your spirit. If you change us from the inside out. If you give us this peace that's only found in the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your goodness, of your faithfulness. God, I pray that you would make this vision a reality here at City Church. As people continue to fill this building, Lord, may it be filled with worshipers who worship your great name. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and pray this all in your name.